All right, so um, you've hopefully thought of some friendships that you've enjoyed um, growing up, uh, maybe in high school as well, or most recently in your time in college, uh, dear precious friendships. Um, and these relationships are, are meaningful to you because you've spent a lot of time together. Uh, you shared a lot of different experiences. You enjoyed doing stuff together. Uh, and, and you shared your heart with each other. I'm sure that's what made your relationships meaningful, special to you. Now, among the people that you thought of, uh, you, you might have experienced something hard as well in that relationship. Um, and some might call it drama. You know, maybe there was gossip, slander, hurt feelings, misunderstanding, a lack of communication, unmet expectations or wrong expectations, unresolved tension or distance in the relationship. Now we've all experienced the messiness of relationships. And it can be particularly hard with someone that you used to enjoy sweet fellowship with. There was this closeness there, but now no longer. And you feel the loss of that friendship. Now what we call, or what people call drama, uh, scripture has, has many words to describe it. Quarrels, conflicts, judging one another. And in the language of our book, uh, biting and devouring, consuming one another. We've all experienced the messiness of relationships. And now we know the relationships will be messy because we're all sinners. Uh, we're, we're all a part of the problem. Our sinful heart contributes to the drama of broken relationships, and my sinful heart included. And the temptation that we all face when things get messy, or is about to get messy, is generally, I think, one of two responses. And these are, these are two broad strokes. One temptation that we face when relationships get messy is that we blow up about the issue. Um, whether we blow up to this person, uh, it, to their face, or, or behind their back among your friends, or just in your own heart, uh, you condemn this person. You act as judge over and against this person. And the other response, um, which I'm more prone to, um, and I think we all have tendencies of both, but the other response is to ignore the issue. Uh, you, you don't want to deal with it. You know? It's just potentially too much work, too involved. Um, and, and you might also be even afraid of making the situation worse because you think you'll respond to his sin with your sin. When you hear this person justifying themselves, blaming others, giving excuses for their behavior, what they did, you're afraid of the messiness in your own heart to want to fire back. And so you don't even want to go there. Or maybe, maybe it's you, you, you avoid people in general. You, you don't want to get too close to people. You might think, you know, I'll still enjoy relationships, but then when it starts to get too close, too messy, I'm going to back away, keep my distance. I'll keep it friendly and nice, but I'm not going to get too involved so that I don't get hurt. So what do you do when relationships with your brothers and sisters get messy? Is your tendency to combat or to avoid? Is it to take matters into your own hands or to ignore a serious concern and to abdicate our call to love? Now, if we're truly walking by the Spirit, 
if we're truly loving our brothers and sisters, which includes warts and all, then relationships guaranteed will be messy. And that is why we need our passage tonight. They'll be in sin. I'll be in sin. We all have our blind spots. We all do things even well-intentioned, but our action communicates a proud heart that's more concerned about self than about loving, honoring, and serving the other person. So we need one another. We need help. So Scripture gives that help. Scripture guides us not just the how to love, but, but the why. Why to love in the face of others' sin. The scripture guides us not only to expect difficulty in relationships and to face it, but it motivates us to get involved. We want to move into the messiness with hope and grace. So the key idea of our, of our message is this. You see it in your notes. A love that bears burdens is costly and rewarding. Love that bears burdens is both costly and rewarding. So we'll structure our message by answering this question. When relationships are messy, well, what does it look like to walk by the Spirit? And I'm giving three steps, and these are not sequential steps. These are just in line with walking by the Spirit. What does a step look like? Um, and, And I give you three according to our passage. One is that you restore. Secondly, you examine your life. And three, you persevere in doing good. Um, Let me pray again for us um, as we read our passage. Father, we come humbly before you. Father, we know that a topic like this uh, can make us feel uncomfortable because it shows our pride. It shows our unwillingness to bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters. So, Father, would you give much grace, ample grace, uh, because we want to be more like Christ. We want to experience uh, the love of Christ in the church body, Lord. And, Father, so pray that the Spirit would work in our hearts, give us hope, um, and illumine, illumine our minds, Lord. In your Son's precious name, amen. All right, let's read Galatians 6, 1 to 10. Brothers... If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, context is going to help us, so let me give a brief review of what Paul's been talking about in this book. Um, we remember that Paul has been, he's been pouring out his heart for the Galatian believers. They were being told by false teachers that they needed to be circumcised, that faith wasn't enough. But Paul says, if you do that, you are bound to keep the whole law of Moses. 
You would be relying on your ability to keep the law. You would be relying on your obedience, your works, for righteousness. So in effect, you'd be nullifying God's grace. You'd be rejecting the perfect righteousness that comes through faith in Christ alone. So Paul says in chapter 5, that through faith, you've been made free. You've been made free in Christ. But that freedom doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. You know, it's not an opportunity for the flesh. That freedom means you're free in Christ so that through love, you can serve one another. So the problem is, even among believers, we bite, we devour, and we can consume one another. And this is a picture of carrying out the desire of the flesh. And that's what Francis talked about last time at the end of Galatians 5. Instead of that, we are to walk by the Spirit, which means bearing the, the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, so our passage is a continuation of this idea, walking by the Spirit. So what does that look like? Um, so, so our, our section passage really begins in chapter 5, verses 25 to 26. Those two verses function as kind of a heading for the beginning of chapter 6. I'll read it. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. When we're not keeping in step with the Spirit, we let our sinful pride get in the way of loving one another well. Outwardly, we can challenge one another, and inwardly, we can envy one another. So it's in this context, in the life of the church among believers, that Paul gets more, a little more specific as to what we do when we see each other's sin. What do we do when we see each other's sin? Well, the, the first step that I pointed out there, well, you restore. You restore. So verse 1 says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So first we note that Paul says, anyone, anyone caught in a transgression. So if we remember uh, back in chapter 2, Paul shares how, how Peter, Peter, an apostle, he was caught in a transgression. That Peter stood condemned. Um, because Peter was acting hypocritically to the gospel that unites everyone in faith. Peter was distancing himself from Gentiles because he feared the Jews and what the Jews would think. And the point being that even an apostle, right, a leader in the church, you know, any, any one of us really can be blinded to our sin. And we need help. Now, who should help? Paul says, you who are spiritual. Now, what does that mean? Uh, Only the spiritually elite? Only the select few among the church? Only the more spiritually mature people in in Beacon? uh, Or your on-campus fellowship group? No, no. In, In context, you who are spiritual is those who are walking by the Spirit. Those who are bearing the fruit of the Spirit. So, really, the responsibility falls on all of us. Okay, so, does that mean every time we see or suspect someone in sin, that we're supposed to call it out? Every time. And to that, I'd say no. So, what does it mean to be caught in any transgression? Well, this doesn't mean that you are the one catching someone in the act, like you caught someone red-handed in the middle of doing something bad. Now, it's, it's that this person has been caught 
by sin. Overtaken by sin. So the word for caught, it's used outside of the Bible to describe running down a wild boar. So it's this picture of a predator chasing down, overtaking a prey. So this is describing someone who, who's in a pattern of sin, is, is entrapped in it. It's over, he's overtaken by this, this predator of sin. Uh, someone who has a tendency toward a particular sin and isn't aware of it or isn't repenting. Alright, so what, it, what is the call then to us who are spiritual? Again, this is not like people who are more spiritual than others. This is ordinary believers bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Well, the call to us is to restore. And this word restore has a sense of um, returning something to its former condition. It, it describes how the, the uh, disciples James and John, how they mended their nets. And after they went out into the sea and fished, they, they mended or they fixed, repaired their nets so that it's usable again. It also speaks of a, of a dislocated limb being put back in place by a doctor. It, it's fixed, it's restored. And that's, that's what we're called to. When we're dealing with a brother or sister who's in sin, we are not to condemn this person in their sin. We are not to act as judge and executioner. We are not to accuse someone of their sin, like the devil who's the accuser. But we are to restore, like Christ, the good and gentle shepherd. It's a, it's a beautiful idea. It's a, it's a word that captures this, this beautiful picture of what we're all about as brothers and sisters growing together in Christ-likeness. In case we miss the tone of how we're to carry out this act of restoring, Paul, Paul says, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This means it's not heavy-handed, harsh, or overbearing. This means it's not acting out of raw emotion, being reactionary, easily frustrated. You know, why are you struggling with this sin? This is not, why don't you get it? Why, why isn't this obvious to you that you shouldn't be doing this? This is instead gentleness. Gentleness isn't being flimsy or ap- apologetic or, or timid. Gentleness is, is being tender. It, it's, it's showing empathy. It's wanting to understand your struggle. It's communicating warmth and openness rather than this this cold, hard-heartedness. And yet, at the same time, gentleness is firm as well. But this is hard. This gets hard when we're the ones offended, right? When we're the ones sinned against by a brother or sister. We, We... it makes us angry. It makes us upset. Why did you talk behind my back like that? Why did you share that when I shared with you in confidence? Or how come you keep flaking on me? You, you prioritize other things than me. And that's why Paul says in the end of verse 1, Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And this is the principle of Matthew 7, right? Take out the log out of your own eye before you very carefully and gently take out the speck out of your brother's eye. Well, Paul says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. In what ways, then, are we tempted? Well, we can be tempted to, to pride, to conceit. Remember the, the heading back in chapter 5, verse 26, Paul says, let us not become conceited. So, so this is, we can be tempted 
to look down on others. We can be tempted to feel superior. I'm more committed to the church than you. Or I reach out to more people than you. Or I know my biblical convictions more than you. But but keeping watch on ourselves, it it produces a spirit of, uh, maybe you've heard this expression before, there but for the grace of God go I. You know, I I would be the same. I would be caught in the same sin. And I would be worse if it were not for the grace of God in my heart and life. We can be tempted to pride. And what are other ways in which we can be tempted? Well, we can be tempted to the same sin in the person that we want to restore. So, for example, speaking to, to the ladies here, say that you approach a fellow sister about how she seems to be hanging out a lot alone with a guy that you have concerns about. And out of your love for her, you, you ask about it. And as you do that, you find yourself desiring a relationship with someone who's, who's funny, who's witty, thoughtful, caring, but is hardened to the things of God. It does not love the Lord. You love being emotionally close with this person, even though you know that this isn't good for you. And obviously, I could give an example for the guys as well. But the point being, we can be tempted to the same sin that the person is caught by. So restoration, it's done in gentleness and humility. Now at this point, I think we might be thinking, we get it, gentleness and humility, but help me see more of what that looks like practically. So just a few pointers hopefully helpful for guidance. So let's say you're, you're at a point where, you know, whatever you saw in someone, um, you have concerns about, um, this is beyond overlooking, you know. Um, overlooking in the sense of, Proverbs 19.11 says this, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. So again, you're not going to address every single thing that bothers you, right? Or every single thing that offends you, which could be an honest mistake, a misunderstanding, a possible sin. But our default position is, Bear all things. Bear one another's weaknesses. Right? But you're at a point where where this is really on your mind. It's affecting you. Um, It's possibly more serious. You've gone through the process of wondering whether you should forgive this person in your heart and just move on. Uh, You've prayed through it. And there's this barrier in in the relationship. And you feel like you need to address it. Alright, so... First helpful pointer is to ask yourself, why are you going to bring this up? Ask yourself, why? Why are you going to bring this up? And this is keeping watch on yourself, right? Lest you too be tempted. Why are you going to confront him? You know, is it primarily because he crossed you? You know, is it more about your kingdom? than about God's kingdom. Do do you want to bring it up because you're concerned about his relationship with God and how that's being reflected and how he's treating you? Are you more concerned about her heart before the Lord? Because we cannot, this cannot be like we're confronting this person out out of a spirit to punish. Like he needs to know that it hurt and I'm going to make him feel it. You know, whether it's calling him names or uh, giving someone the cold shoulder or becoming terse and make her feel how disappointed I am. 
But is this out of a spirit of, of wanting to help, to restore? All right, second point of application about the actual conversation. What does that sound like? Well, second point, I would say keep it private and just ask. Um, so ask if you can speak with this person, ideally face-to-face. When you do get a chance to meet up, um, just ask. Don't assume you know everything. Don't assume you know this person's heart motive. And don't accuse. Um, you, you don't know everything in this person's heart, the pressures on him or her either. But instead of just accusing, share your observation. Just share your concern and just ask. So a few scenarios. So let's say, yeah, a few different scenarios. Um, you're concerned about a friend who hasn't been to church or fellowship a long time. So I would ask, hey, hey, brother, you know, it's good to meet up with you. And I wanted to ask about this. You know, I might have just missed you. You know, it seems like you haven't been at church and fellowship for some time. And I care for you. I just want to reach out and hear how you're doing. Right? That's the tone. Or a different issue. Hey, I saw your Instagram post the other day about blank. And I don't want to assume. And I want to honor you and really want to understand you rightly. And I care for you and, and what you wrote about. So I wanted to ask your thoughts on that. Can you tell me more about it? Again, that's the tone. Another example, you know, sister, I see you, so, you and this guy hanging out a lot. Um, and I'm concerned about you and what I know of this guy. And I care for you. So I want to I ask, how are you thinking through that friendship? Right? You're just asking. And so the person, um, yeah, may share more and may even confess. Maybe uh, you just misunderstood. But then now there's greater mutual understanding. Or the person might be defensive and not repent. And then you have to follow another course of action. But... All of the, you know, the point being that this is a step, right, toward restoration. So I think at this point we we have to acknowledge that, man, this is daunting, right? Like this, this is what it means to bear the burden of others. It's hard and messy and a lot of work. And honestly, it seems like a messy situation can get even messier. And I might even be hurt in the process. Why would I want to be involved in this? And so Paul says, Galatians 6, verse 2, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Restoring one another, it's a part of how we fulfill the law of Christ. So, let's take that first part of that verse. You know, What does it mean to bear one another's burdens? The burden is anything that weighs down, or oppresses a person. So burden is anything that makes your life, uh, your living your life for God, difficult. So this is this is your own sin. This is your suffering as well, the hardship, the being sinned against, all of that. So so we see that part of bearing one another's burdens is to restore a brother or sister caught in a transgression. So now, how do you bear someone's burden, literally? Well, you have to get close, right? And it's a sweet picture of what the church is called to. You're shoulder to shoulder. You're you're close to people. Let me help you carry that burden. 
This is how we fulfill the law of Christ. Remember, Christ himself said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And so, what motivates us to restore someone in sin? Well, one, we, we obey what Christ commanded us. But two, that's the example that He set for us, right? That's what motivates us. We remember what Christ has done for us, that He's borne our greatest burden, our sin, our guilt, our shame. He carried our sorrows. And in like manner, when a brother or sister is caught in sin, we can shoulder that burden, right? We can be like Christ. Now notice in our passage, Paul says, you you restore, right? How do you do that? In a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. That's a picture of, of Christ, right? When you see the gospel, uh, read the Gospels, note how he spoke with his disciples, how he restored Peter. It was in gentleness, and it was keeping watch on himself, that, that Christ himself would not succumb to temptation. That's, he described himself as, as gentle and lowly in heart, right? And so we image Christ who is gentle and lowly when we restore. And, and that's the, the beauty of the church. We, we image Christ to one another. So now perhaps you're, you're here tonight um, and you know that there's someone in your life that you might need to speak to. Perhaps restore someone you're concerned about. You're not sure at this point if, if it's something you'll bring up, but maybe this is someone you should talk to. Or on the other hand, you might be the one in need of a gentle and humble restoration. And so to both groups of people, I, I want to remind you of, of Christ. You know, as you think about how Christ has drawn near to you, He didn't come eager to condemn you. But when you were hardened, spiritually dull and apathetic, not alive to the things of God, I mean, it's His kindness that has drawn us to himself, right? And maybe it was, it was through the people of God who imaged Christ to us. There are people in our lives who gently confronted us, warned us, and in love called us to repentance and faith because that's the path of life. And Christ, he, he has not come to us ir- easily irritable, ready to accuse us with a long list of sins. But he's come to you, he's come to me, with a heart full of compassion and mercy. And may that motivate you to want others to be restored, to want others to experience the same heart of Christ. Or maybe to you, who are in secret sin, in hypocrisy, in a double life, in love with the world, in pride... To you as well, may this gentle and lowly Christ soften your heart. Soften your heart that you would forsake your sin and be restored to your Savior. Alright, now let's look at the second step of walking by the Spirit. Again, not sequential step, but just an example of what that looks like when relationships are messy. So first I said you restore. Second, uh, you examine your life. You examine your life. 
And to some extent, actually, we already covered this at the end of verse 1, but we see this more fully in verses 3 to 5. I'll read it for us. Verses 3 to 5. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. So what keeps us from wanting to bear the burdens of others? What's our pride? Um, Specifically, he's talking about self-importance here. It's thinking that we're something when we're nothing. And obviously, uh, when he says nothing, it doesn't mean we're like nothing, nothing. You know, because we're created in the image of God through faith. You know, we're beloved children of God. So, so by nothing, he means that there's, there's nothing that we bring to the table that makes us right with God. And even our most righteous of deeds is tainted with sin, right? And so, um, yeah, we, we think we're something before God and, and that we're okay because of, specifically, a misplaced standard of comparison. And by that I mean we compare ourselves to others, other Christians, other people, rather than God's standard, God's word. We might feel superior to others because we're more committed to the church than others. We have more consistent devos than others. We reach out to more people uh, than others. We're, we're more diligent in our schoolwork, in our job, in our responsibilities than others. We're more theologically knowledgeable than others. We're more sociable and friendly than others. You might be weak in this one area, but you know you're better in doing something more faithfully than others. Well, it works the other way as well. We, we might think we're less than other Christians. You know, we haven't been as long of a Christian than others. Not as biblically knowledgeable as a Christian. And, and this sense of, of feeling inferior or feeling less might keep us, actually, from bearing others' burdens. The common denominator between both is, is that we're comparing our work to others and feeling we're better or we're worse than these other Christians. Instead of, instead of acknowledging that any good work, any faithfulness on our part, is totally because of God's grace. You know, Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He says, by His grace, I work hard. He says, God is working in me to will and to work for His good pleasure. He says, it is Christ's power working mightily within me. And so it is with us. So we don't want to bear others' burdens because we might think we're better than others. We think our acts of obedience make us godlier than others. And this is, this is the self-righteous attitude of the Pharisee. And what, what Paul says here is contrasting the attitude uh, of the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees, they heap burdens on others. You need to be circumcised. And they create man-made laws and and heap them on people. You're not meeting this standard. All the while, they do not lift up even a finger to help bear the burden of others. Those are Christ's words. And Christ says that same thing that Paul says here. Christ says to the Pharisees, You tithe mint and dill and cumin. You do these things. And yet you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. What is that? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. He says, You think you're better than others because you do all this stuff? But are you bearing others' burdens? Doing justice, showing mercy, faithful in love. So Paul says, back to our passage, verse 4, examine your life. Examine 
your own work? What is your standard? Is it your own set of rules and expectations? Of, of what you have, uh, expectations about yourself and others? Or, or do you, is your standard some other person's life and how they're doing, their Christian walk? Or is your standard Christ and His Word? Because Christ alone is our judge. Our lives will be evaluated by Christ alone. And so Paul says, examine your life because 5, verse 5, you will be judged. You will have to bear your own load. Now on that day of final judgment, it will matter how you lived your life. Now to be clear, this isn't talking about earning your righteousness through your works. right? That's what Paul's been speaking against this whole letter. You're saved through faith alone, but the evidence of your faith is good works. Good works do not save you, but they demonstrate real faith. So verse 5, he's, he's talking about how you will still have to give an account of your life. And, and this, this actually isn't a contradiction to verse 2, right? He says, bear one another's burdens there. There in verse 2, the point was, we have to enter into the problems and cares of other fellow believers. And so with that said, the point here in verse 5 is that your life alone will be evaluated by God, not someone else's life. Nobody else can live the Christian life for you. God's not going to look at the faith of your parents or your friends or your future spouse and say, well done, good and faithful servant. I gave you one talent and you hid it away, but take heart, I gave your spouse 10 talents and she made 15 talents more. So I'll credit those extra uh, talents to your account. And God is not going to say that. And he will say, well done, good and faithful servant, only if by his grace we have taken everything he's given us and we have abounded in the work of the Lord for his glory. So Beacon, the more we know right, the implications of faith alone, implications of the gospel on our lives, the more we will live with faithfulness and zeal uh, for him. <clears throat> So, if we, if we compare ourselves with other Christians, we can find ourselves feeling better, congratulating ourselves, or, or we can become discouraged, right, that we're not doing enough. But the one who ultimately judges us is the Lord. That's why we must honestly and regularly assess ourselves in light of God's Word. So, how do we examine our life? <clears throat> I want to give three quick applications. I noted, uh, you can see them in your notes. How, how do you examine your life? Um, very quick. I actually got all of this from Christian, so credit goes to him. So pray for God to search you. Right? Pray for God to search you. That's Psalm 139, 23-24. Right? David says, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me, any sinful way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Right? That should be our prayer, that God would search us. Secondly, be in the Word regularly. Right? Scripture is, is the mirror. It's the mirror that helps us see ourselves more clearly. Uh, it's what we need for, for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. We have to let the Word examine us. And not just examine us, but we have to let the Word give us hope as well. To, to persevere in faith. And third, have honest conversations with those in the church who know you. I mean, the, they can help you answer the question, you know, what's keeping me? What's keeping me from 
bearing others' burdens, from getting involved and loving others. Well, I mean, they, they know your life. I mean, they observe you. Um, they can say, maybe, maybe on the one hand, that you know, you're, you're just preoccupied with your own things. You're caught up with your own stuff, you know, your own kingdom, your own priorities. Selfish with your use of time, blind to the needs of others. Or on the other hand, they can say, dude, you're doing just too many things. You know, you're, you're way too involved in the church or in campus ministry, on campus ministry, in the lives of others, it all, you know, with a good intent, right? Presumably for God. But your own relationship with the Lord is suffering. And that's what we heard from Pastor Eric recently, right? Um, to, to sit at the feet of Jesus. We need that. We need rest in Him. So regular fellowship with people, honest conversations with people, that'll help us. <clears throat> that'll help us examine our life and our work. <clears throat> so uh, let's uh, move on to the third step of walking by the Spirit. What does that look like? First, you restore. Second, you examine your life. Third, you persevere in doing good. So in verse 6, Paul gives a, a specific example of burden-bearing love. He says this, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, now this is important because in the context of Galatian believers, there are Judaizers. There are false teachers. Right? I mean, that's the same in our context, too. There are false teachers. But them, their context, false teachers were dangerously misleading people away from the gospel of grace, right? But then there are also faithful teachers. And those faithful teachers should be provided for financially, so, just in the verses before, Paul said, examine your life. But examining your life should not be misinterpreted. Um, it, it shouldn't lead the Galatian believers to hold back, supporting, hold back from supporting those who teach. And we need to remember that like, in the early church, those who taught the word, they earned a living outside the church. Right? So, so their preparation for teaching and preaching, their ministry, came at a cost to their families. So that's why Paul writes that people in the church, this is how you can bear the burden of those who teach and preach God's word. Support them. And that means financially as well. <clears throat> so he, he grounds this, this giving, give, right, uh, in, in a more fundamental principle, verses 7 to 8. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Okay, so what does it mean to sow to your own flesh? And some translations say, um, and I agree with them, that this means to, to satisfy or to please your own flesh, your own sinful nature. So this is your conduct, your actions, your life, how you use your time, energy, your mind, all the resources God has given you in the day-to-day, -day, all of that to satisfy your sinful flesh. And conversely, sowing to the Spirit means living your life in such a way as to satisfy and please the Spirit. So what does he say here? How will you reap eternal life? Is it by saying that you believe in Jesus, but you can live however way you want? No, right? 
If you live to please yourself, your sinful flesh, no matter what you profess, you're going to reap corruption. And if you make that parallel to the eternal life, the corruption is referring to eternal destruction. You are either on a road, he's saying, leading to corruption and eternal destruction, or on a road leading to the fullness of eternal life. And remember, Paul's speaking to believers, right? And so we should not sugarcoat or dampen the force of passages like this. We need to hear both the warning and the encouragement. And the warning is that if if you live life for yourself, you are headed for destruction. But the encouragement is that if you live your life for Christ, you will enjoy eternal life with Him and His people. Your works matter. Your, your life matters. What you do every single day matters. And here, here's what's important about the sowing and reaping metaphor. So just like the farmer who works hard day and night to grow his crops. In the same way, right? As believers, we, we, can, we can grow tired, right? We can grow weary of doing good. We can be discouraged when we don't see results. Right? The people that we invest in aren't growing at the rate that we want them to. The people that we love faithfully, they're not changing, even though we're, we're speaking in love to them. We, we invest in a relationship. We reach out to people, but there's little reciprocation, little return. And that can discourage us. Right? That can deflate us, keep us from burden-bearing love. And so that's why Paul says in verses 9 and 10, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially, especially to those who are of the household of faith. We will reap. We will reap in due season if we don't give up. And there's a sense of urgency here. He says, as we have opportunity. So, so this includes everyday opportunities that the Lord gives us. But I also think Paul's speaking of the time that we have now before the end comes. So in other words, there will come a day when it will be too late. The time has passed. On that day of judgment, we cannot expect to live our life again, our days of youth your 20s, and and, and we cannot expect to redo our lives in a way that pleases God. But it is not too late now. We have opportunity now to keep sowing to the Spirit, right? Practically, this summer, this month, this weekend, this very night, we have opportunity to do good to whomever we come in contact with, but especially, especially to the people of God your brothers and sisters here and at Lighthouse. Now, why does, why does Paul make this point, this, this priority that he gives? Well, it's because the people around you, even in this room, and the people at Lighthouse, your brothers and sisters, they are the very people for whom Christ purchased with His life. They are the very people that Christ has given up His life to save. And that is why the priority is to, to those who are of faith. And this is not to neglect 
doing good to unbelievers, right? He says, do good to all. But the point is to emphasize, not to exclude. Alright, so we reap what we sow. And so, as I've said, as I've taught, the stress is on the eternal life that we're going to reap in the future on the Day of Judgment. But we're still reaping practically, right, what we sow today. It's a a basic principle of life, right? The problem is that those things in our lives that we consider small sins, minor, or or hidden sin, that we think are just not not, um, big of a deal, um, and, and we have a hard time letting go of. The problem is that we don't feel the same way about those things, right? Whether it's we're, we're wasting our time consuming so much entertainment, YouTube, games, social media, or complaining, anger, people-pleasing, materialism, sexual immorality. These things that we know in our heads that are not ultimately good and helpful, um, and yet we lack repentance, so, so what do we do? How do we cultivate sowing to the Spirit in these small sins as well, which are not? How do we cultivate godly sorrow that leads to repentance? So, um, I want to give just very quickly three ways as well. Um, how can we work against sowing to our own flesh? Uh, they're on your notes. I think we have to first pray, right? We have to pray honest prayers to confess struggling to feel the weight of sin. Whatever you thought of, or whatever you think of, those small sins in your life that you feel are just there, you know it's wrong, but um, you, you categorize as minor instead of really repenting of them. You confess. Confess feeling not feeling the weight and gravity of that sin. We ought to ask others to pray for us in the same way as well, that we would not just ex- we would not experience worldly sorrow, but godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Secondly, we, we study why it's it's bad. Why is that sin sinful? We study the word, we study it with the people that we trust, we, we speak about it and ask for their help. Help me to think through this. Help me walk with me as, as I, I really desire to turn from this sin. And we also can potentially speak about it to the person we sinned against. Right? Maybe, maybe it's an example of anger and how you were passive-aggressive and showed anger towards this person. And you can ask, how did that make you feel? You know, can you share with me how you experienced it? In, in all of this, the point is, oftentimes we keep doing these minor sins because we don't know how others are harmed by it. And we don't know, ultimately, how, this, how God, how, how the Spirit is grieved by it. And so, we need to consider deeply why it is bad. All right, third, bring it to the light. Bring it to the light. And, and really, this point has been made already. It's, it, there is something about verbalizing your struggle and, and, and someone knowing that, that makes that struggle more concrete. But I want to stress the be specific part, as would be helpful. I don't think it's helpful when you're general. You know, oh, I struggle with lust. Oh, I struggle with anger. Or, oh, I struggle with people-pleasing. 
You know, it doesn't communicate the weight of it, the sin. And when you say, I struggle with wasting time, it helps to know if you say, well, I'm on YouTube maybe seven hours a day, well into the night, until four in the morning, and I watch blank. Oftentimes when you say things more specifically, as you say it, you realize the folly of it in your own sinfulness. You know, I struggle with anger. And, and in this one st- instance, you know, the person did this, and, and I called him this. I even swore at him. And, and I call, qualify specific as would be helpful. Um, only as would be helpful, because people can be tempted as well, right? If you're struggling with lust, people don't need to know the details of that. And... Um, yeah, these three things, right? Pray for godly sorrow. I study why it's bad. Um, bring it to the light. This is all to, to, to help us um, turn from sowing to the flesh to sowing to the Spirit. So positively, um, how can we not be discouraged but keep sowing to the Spirit? We're almost there, guys. Positively. You know, because reaping eternal life, that can seem very far away, right? Distant into the future. I know that that's what I'm going to, the Christ is, is going to give me. But it seems very far away and indefinite. How can I feel more of the weight of what I do today matters? Well, a few things. One, remember that Christ does not forget your labor of love. Your, your act of love for someone today, it is a not a waste. And Hebrews 6.10 says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. God is not unjust. He's not going to forget it. He's not going to overlook your labor of love, even if nobody else notices it. And I know, I, I mean, you know people in your life, tough situations, difficult people to love. And I think of someone who's taking care of aging parents. It's hard. It feels endless. And so this truth is a comfort. God will not forget your labor of love. Secondly, we, remember we are preparing one another to meet our bridegroom. Preparing uh, one another to meet our bridegroom. And the church, as you know, is pictured as the bride of Christ. We're we're betrothed to Christ, our husband. And so scripture speaks of how we're waiting, right, and anticipating the marriage supper of the Lamb. But now, in this betrothal period, we're separated from Christ. And in this period, we're, we're being sanctified. And we're being made more like Christ, awaiting the time when we'll be presented to Christ in splendor and purity. And so, that should motivate us because every single day matters. Um, as, as I bear the burdens of others, your burdens, my burdens, we're preparing one another to meet our Savior uh, so that we don't have to shrink from Him in shame, but that we welcome Him and that we are eager to, to behold Him. So third, last point, finally, remember we are knowing Him more. 
Right? Paul says we'll reap eternal life, but we know that eternal life is something we enjoy now. Jesus himself said, eternal life is knowing God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is a relationship with him. So if we choose to give up persevering and do, doing good, and if we choose instead to sow to our own flesh, we forfeit we forfeit the grace of God that he gives to those who humbly depend on him. We forfeit knowing more of God's power that makes us resilient in the face of hardship. We forfeit greater peace in the face of great fear. We forfeit greater hope in the face of great loss and sorrow. And we forfeit greater faith in the face of doing what seems impossible. We forfeit knowing more of the love of Christ that empowers His people. It comes at a great cost when both the big and the small things of your life, in the big and small things of your life, we sow to our own flesh instead of sowing to the Spirit. So I'll I'll wrap up by saying that as I think about people in my life you know, both in the past and even now, how they've borne my burdens and still do today, and even those who have specifically restored me. I, I'm, I am who I am today because of Christ through them. I am who I am today. God has given me the faith that I have, the hope that I have, the wisdom that I have, the holiness that I have, the love that I have because of Christ through them. And not only that, it's not just how God made me who I am today, but because of what they've done, they've shown me Christ. Like in spite of my sins, instead of my sorrows and my messiness that I brought to the relationship, instead of my thoughtlessness and my lack of love and on and on, I mean, they've shown me the gentle and lowly Christ. And they've, they've shown that by their concern for my soul, my faith, my relationship with God. They've shown me how precious and good and gracious, gracious Jesus is. So, Beacon, tonight, I hope that you've seen that the love that we're called to, the love that bears burdens, it's not just costly. Right? It's not just costly. It is rewarding. I pray that you'll long to know Him more and show Him more by bearing others' burdens. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, thank you for your Son. God, there's no one like Him. He who is God of very God. And yet, he was so gentle and lowly, a person of such glory and such power, would not in this world be the way Christ lived, Lord. But Christ was not a tyrant, he's not an accuser, he's not a condemner, but Father Christ. He forgives, is full of compassion, and is merciful. 
and that is the Christ that we turn to and that we long to know more of and Christ is the one we long to show others as well. So Father, pray that even tonight in this conversation in our small groups, would you help us to that end. Grow us, make us more united in our love for one another and our love for you. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.